Feminist Current, I'm Megan Murphy. As a lifelong feminist and leftist, born and raised in Canada, I never considered the idea that guns could be empowering. I didn't think much about guns at all, but when I did, I thought of them as scary. Recently, I began to wonder if I was missing something. I started to wonder whether taking guns or gun rights away was really a good thing. And could women in particular benefit from better access to gun training and education around gun use? In an effort to explore this topic and debate further, I reached out to Antonia Okafor-Cover, the founder and president of an American nonprofit group called Empowered, which exists to educate, train, and equip young women in the use of firearms for protection on college campuses, and to help women advocate for their Second Amendment rights. I will be speaking on a panel with Antonia in Greater Austin on September 30th. You can get tickets for Women Leaving the Left, Breaking the Political Binary at Eventbrite via the link provided in the show notes. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for asking me. I This is like totally out of my wheelhouse. <laughs> so obviously, obviously I'm interested in learning more. Um, I wonder if you can just start by telling me a bit about your background. Oh, well, um, so I grew up in the suburb of Dallas, Texas. Uh, my parents are Nigerian immigrants, so depending on your definition of first generation, first generation here or first generation born here. Um, I'm first generation born here um, in America. And so I, I mean, other than that, uh, my background, definitely not your typical uh, Second Amendment activist, gun rights activist background. Um, in fact, I was pretty anti-gun, anti-Second Amendment. Um, my family you know we had a lot of turmoil early on in my life I when I was about five years old I was um became a sexual assault survivor and my parents went to prison both of them um for my for my mom and dad uh selling selling uh drugs so uh that was yeah (laughs) you know just start off the bat with a really you know, broken story about my family mm-hmm. <laughs> background, but that's, that's my background was, um, dealing with a lot of that, a broken family and a, a family kind of ripped apart by, uh, the policies in America when it comes to, to drugs and, and et cetera. But, um, other than that, pretty, pretty typical. <laughs> <laughs> totally typical. Well, well it probably, yeah, probably is everybody. pretty typical to be honest. And sadly, <laughs> Um, and you know, what's your political background? Like, did you grow up in a politicized community households? Yeah. Um, so I would say, <laughs> I would say my, my mom's obsessed with have, I, don't, I think this is a Nigerian thing. Maybe, I don't know. I, I just talked to other Nigerians and they're my age and they're like, yeah, that was them too. But, um, my mom was just obsessed with CNN and having CNN playing 24 seven. Um, so that was what was playing 24 seven in our household. So, um, uh, but yeah, the, for the most part, you know, voted Democrat. Um, my parents did, you know, my mom did, just that was kind of our identity. Wasn't really looking for anything else, really. Um, so kind of went along with a lot of platforms in that sense um, until I went to college in 20, 2008, mm-hmm. 2009. Um, and then a lot of things changed in my life. Uh, one big thing, I became a Christian at the time. Um, but other than that, um, I really changed my idea of being anti second amendment when, you know, as my background of being a feminist, as my background of 
essentially my journey of trying to change from being, or rather my journey of having, I say, a lot of my power taken away from me um, at that moment of being becoming a survivor at a young age and trying to find my way to being a powerful woman again. Um, I found that through feminism. And so that was very much a part of my journey, I would say even politically, of being a feminist, of being in women empowerment groups of, you know, having that be my mission to empower other women. Um, and, and I found that especially that that community in college. So I would say that was when a lot of things started changing for me. Um, so as you were, you know, in the past when you were younger, identifying as a Democrat, your family, you know, voted Democrat, um, was that attached to any specific issues or identities? You know, what was what was driving um, that party line? Mm, um, yeah, I think <laughs> I think several different things. Um, like I said, you know, I identify as a feminist, and I so I knew in my circles that being anything other than I would say at least a Democrat was was kind of frowned upon um so I, in those circles for sure I think that was just a, a big driving pull towards that side um but I mean my mom was uh and, and just a lot of different a lot of different things but I would say even more so it was just kind of going what my family had done for a long time although you know, when I finally thought about it, I thought about how a lot of I mean, my parents are, you know, like, like I said, immigrants, and they're very traditional, very conservative, and a lot of different policies that wouldn't have been welcomed in the Democratic Party, um, even, you know, 10, 15 years ago, um, but especially not now. But uh, so I, I had a lot of other conservative beliefs, you know, drive driven by my mom being Roman Catholic, etc. Um, but in general, as a black woman, I just felt that was the safest space for me to be in. Um, you know, easiest because it was my family and my family went along with being in that, you know, voting Democrat. But also in that space, I just felt, well, I have these general um, big beliefs that I think I identify with in regards to the party and, and the people who say they identify with that party. So um, I'm going to go along with it. But I mean, honestly, it was a lot of not doing my own research of my own values and how I felt about certain policy issues and um, how that kind of that cognitive, uh, you know, dissociation of not really realizing a lot of the beliefs and that I grew up with and I actually held dear. Um, I didn't agree with with the party, but in general, I felt it easiest to, to kind of go along with being a party. I think the biggest identi identity factor was being a black woman. Mm -hmm. And what changed? Uh, well, I would say, I mean, the biggest thing for me was becoming a Christian. So uh, born again Christian, I grew up Roman Catholic, kind of went with all of that. Um, but when I became a Christian, like individually finding Christ for myself, um, you know, there are a couple of big things that I felt I had already, for example, I was a Democrat, but I was pretty pro-life at the time. So that alone, right, in those circles doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, but I kept that quiet usually. But, you know, for the most part, when I became a Christian, I became, I felt more bold, uh, or I wanted to be more bold, rather, about uh, voicing my, my um, you know, being against things like that and et cetera. Um, but then... Also, it was my journey in feminism. And, and again, I, again, my identity as being a black woman and finding out the differences of feminism and the roads that in history, uh, you know, white women and feminism and black women and feminism have taken um, because of, you know, their backgrounds. Um, and that kind of led me to realizing that I just didn't actually fit in to what, quote unquote, like mainstream feminism was mm -hmm. and I didn't understand that for a long time like why I didn't fit in 
Um, yes, of course, I had the fact that my parents were African and they're not African-American or, you know, um, they're, we're from Texas or, you know, et cetera. But I think in the gist of it, I, I kind of felt even as a black woman that I just wasn't seeing myself really in those circles that I thought I was you know, a part of in the feminist circles. But then also the whole safety aspect of realizing that, you know, you know, I have people who would say, well, you don't need that because you can be in a safe neighborhood or you don't need a firearm because you, um, you, you know, you can have all these type of lifestyle things that I just never was privy to or, or really had access to that all kind of brought along me realizing that my journey in feminism was a little different than the mainstream journey of most feminists that I knew, you know, even the college circles and world um, that I was in. So that's what kind of made me start realizing that and reading into like bell hooks and, and black feminists and um, finding out that a lot of them were actually, you know, pro pro gun. And of course, cause they, they needed to protect themselves and, and, and not only dealing with sexism, but dealing with racism and, and how that tended to, make them have the choice to, to have um, some type of means of, of protecting themselves. And, and I knew that already as a sexual assault survivor, I've always had that that initial innate feeling of knowing that it comes down to me at the end of the day and no one's going to save you. But it was especially in my studies, in my journey as a Black woman feminist, that I realized that I didn't necessarily have to prescribe to this whole anti-gun um, narrative that I had just been told so many times had to be correlated um, with being a feminist. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting because, I mean, in general, I think feminists are assumed to be, and I think probably most feminists, well, most feminists that I've known in any case have been totally anti-gun. I mean, tell me a bit more about that. Tell me about the feminists that you were reading who were speaking out in support of guns and gun rights, particularly for women and in terms of, you know, female empowerment. Yeah, I mean, Bell Hooks, I don't think ever was saying, you know, I'm pro-gun or anything like that. Um, it was a lot of, I mean, um, just even older than her I mean I mean from Harriet Tubman to I mean to so many other black women but in history Ida B. Wells and etc who have said yes I am um, pro self-defense and defending myself and I mean even when we saw with the Black Panthers we saw women um, who you know they notoriously would talk about even switching gender roles um, strategically and purposely like the men in Black Panthers were the ones who were feeding uh, the breakfast programs, you know, feeding the children um, breakfast in the morning and the, the women were out there posting, you know, um, out in post, making sure that they were defending those people with, with guns in the front, you know, like things like that has always been, you find in, in several different instances in, his, in history, but according, I mean, really going down to what we are seeing now in, in statistics of, of the 48% of female gun owners that had just become gun owners in the last couple of years from 2019 to 2022, 21% um, of those women are black women. And so that is in itself just, and I've seen it, of course, again, as a black woman, but it's never been um, something that I, I could see in a you know, tangible statistic and to see it now so overwhelmingly uh, that yes, the fastest growing demographic of gun owners are not only women, but they're black women has just shown what I've been feeling in my circles and myself and my personal journey for decades now. Mm -hmm. And I'm fairly certain that the so-called intersectional feminists would either not be aware of that or, you know, be in some version of denial about that. Why do you think that it is that in mainstream feminism, these views are not really acknowledged or represented? Like usually, um, I would say the mainstream feminist movement presents gun rights, um, or, you know, and, and people who would be in favor of gun rights and, you know, less gun control 
um, as primarily being, you know, white men. You know, they would probably also present them as racists and misogynists. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's that's I'm trying to figure that out for a long time um, now about honestly what I, I it's I'm just going to say what it is. It's a pretty sexist uh, narrative and views towards those who are women who are wanting to to be pro second amendment or pro gun um or who just want to hey i'm not even going to make it a stance right now i just want to get a gun for the first time right like right. that even in itself you whenever you see any type of messaging or videos or news uh just showing women and gun rights or women in firearm ownership or you know just this massive wave of women who are becoming gun owners and when I say massive wave, like I've never seen something so drastic, even in the time that I've been a pro Second Amendment activist in the last uh, decade of how the pandemic has like literally conservatively, I would have said that 22 percent and it's a conservative number even then, but 22 percent of gun owners were women. And now we're seeing from literal studies from Harvard, from Georgetown, um, all of these all of these statistics showing that it is now 42% of gun owners are women. And that's just in the last three, three years. Hmm. So it's showing that there's this drastic p- push towards women who, I mean, I think now we're seeing ourselves in the gun industry and, and marketing, et cetera. Um, we're seeing people, leaders, female leaders in the industry rise up and like talk about why they're, why they're doing this. Um, but I've seen a lot of sexist narratives against that of anytime there's a woman in, in the media or anytime there's, you know, that statistic that's that's pushed out there, it's, oh, well, more women are, you know, pat on the back, like, oh, well, more women are going to use that firearm probably, um, unfortunately, to harm themselves to, than to use it in self-defense or um, all of these type of statistics that just completely um, negate the reasons why women are trying to have a firearm in the first place. And that's, of course, yeah, they're new to this game of having gun ownership, but it's because I like any new demographic to, to, to something, they have to learn, they have to be trained, they have to get to the point where just like any other man um, who has culturally for like since birth, you know, people have told him he's a man, he should have a gun. Um, now women are trying to get into this whole equal plat field, uh, platform rather of people who are saying, okay, have a firearm to defend yourself and you can use it. You can train with it. You can, you can be just as good as anybody else to do, um, what you need to do with a firearm in the right way. Um, but then they're also hearing, uh, frankly, really sexist narratives saying that they can't do just what other men can do, which is train and, and use a firearm in a safe manner. So, that's the unfortunate thing that I've been seeing a lot of. So what's driving this um, rise in women and particularly black women buying or, or wanting to own guns? You know, if, you know, statistically, it's found that 60 percent of firearm owners, um, female firearm owners, especially ones who have just bought a firearm for the first time, 60% um, have said uh, the number one reason is self-defense. So the number one reason is self-defense for, for women. And I mean, I've trained and I've worked with thousands of women um, what, from events to, you know, individually as a firearms instructor and, you know, and of course myself, but honestly, it's talking to them. And, you know, a lot of people have a lot of the same stories as I do of being, survivors of domestic violence, survivors of sexual assault, survivors um, in general in their lives and, and saying instead of what I think a lot of gun control people usually push is, you know, after those traumatic, you know, those tragedies of, well, you know, you don't need to be around guns or we shouldn't have guns around us, um, which would perfect world, right? Of course, anybody trying to harm us, we wouldn't want them to have any type of weapon to do so. Unfortunately, we're not in a perfect world. We're in a world where people, you know, perpetuate violence towards us and we have nothing to do with it. And so instead of thinking, okay, well, this is a reality. Let's make sure that these women have some means of defending themselves against these people. 
Um, I think that's that's what people are trying to finally actualize in their life is that, look, I'm not I don't care like what perfect role you have in your mind. At the end of the day, I know that when the pandemic hit and police officers and police departments were telling us, look, you're on your own because we're we're at over capacity. We're at, you know, we can't go to your home because based on these phone calls, um, we're not going to get there like we did in before beforehand, even at that time when it was quote unquote the the status quo of response time we're talking minutes to get to your home versus seconds of that you know of that event actually occurring so it's just that messaging of women finally realizing that you know they're on their own and that it you know at the end of the day they have to protect themselves and they have to protect their family and the uncertainty of the pandemic of people having to stay at home and not being able to have access to even firearms at one point when everybody was going to get firearms at the same time and there was no training available because uh, states were, were deeming um, the firearm industry uh, training and gun ranges, et cetera, as non-essential. Then there are all these people who knew that they were on their own and at home to defend their lives and, and their children that are suddenly at home that they have to take care of in homeschool um, or themselves that at the end of the day, they knew that they had to take care of their their own safety. And I think that's a message that, unfortunately, a lot of us got through this pandemic, um, but particularly women. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so much has been brought to light um, in the past two years on account of the, the COVID lockdowns and, and the impact on women, which was that a lot of women were, you know, trapped in homes with abusers mm-hmm. more so than they had been in the past. A lot of people lost their constitutional rights and started to realize that they should start thinking about defending themselves um, and probably realized how like precarious their sense of safety was. But I do think, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, in a perfect world, idea and i think that that is unfortunately what drives feminists and the left's opposition to guns and gun gun rights like i come from i come from canada i come from a feminist background i've been a feminist for as long as i can remember um i come from a super left wing background you know i identified as like a marxist when i was younger and then as a socialist up until a few years ago um and i i think that what feminists would say in terms of the arguments that you're making around you know like you know we need to defend ourselves like we are dealing with male violence and we are dealing with sexual assault all the time, unfortunately. And they would probably say something like, well, what we need to do is we need to stop men from, you know, being violent. We need to stop men from raping and abusing. But that's not the world we live in. It's just Mm -hmm. not. And mm, I think that most women don't have anyone to protect them. You know, in some places, women can call the police. In some places, they can't. And we have a movement coming from the left that's saying, defund the police. Um, and apparently unaware of how that would, you know, harm women. Right. And, and, and that's, and I always say when people ask me, like, you know, how did I become like going from a feminist to being pro second amendment or pro gun? Um, honestly, I don't think that, uh, they're mutually exclusive. I, I actually think it makes a lot of sense for a good feminist to be pro second amendment and pro gun, because I mean, what was I being taught and through feminism and it is to be an independent uh woman that's able to take care of herself (laughs) and that's financially that's you know in so many different ways and then and that's all never people like well i don't want to call myself feminist or or whatever i mean i think it's just ignorance i think feminism has done so much uh for women and for myself individually um, just again, as a survivor, uh, as a way of being able to 
to uh, encourage and empower myself and equip myself. But I, I also finally realized that if I was a good, a good quote unquote feminist, right, a, a woman that is is trying to empower herself and other women around me, uh, particularly in colleges, uh, that's when you know all of this thinking started. Um, you know, it was it was in the 2000, 2008, 2009, like I said, uh, Obama did a, a big study, I believe it was um, not a couple years after um, I, I attended college and of, of finding out that there was, you know, this epidemic of sexual assaults and on college campuses. And, and that's really what drove me to individually start getting personally involved in this movement and this fight, because like you were saying, like, I was sick and tired of the only quote unquote solution being, well, we got to wait for these men to wake up and uh, hopefully their mothers and fathers or whatever amount of schooling that we do um, will prevent them from hopefully never doing the horrible thing to women ever again um, that we could ever imagine. And and I was sick and tired of waiting for somebody else to be the, the solution to a, an issue that was impacting me and and my fellow women. And so I wanted a way where, look, unfortunately we have men who regardless of how much schooling they're gonna get or you know, PSAs or education that they're gonna get from people, not saying that that's null and void, but um, I want a way to defend myself against those people right now. And I, I think that was what it was. It was like me being sick and tired of solutions of people just saying, wait, just hold on. Uh, let me let me have this other person make that decision that could completely impact your life. And again, again, as a survivor, I know how detrimental that can be, and and how waiting can change someone's thinking and livelihood for the rest of their life, and including their and including their generations after. And so, I was sick and tired of just being that that person waiting, and I wanted to do something now to help defend women right now. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you can talk a bit about the history of gun rights in America and how that is connected to the history of, you know, the fight for civil rights um, and the fight for equality in America, the fight against racism in America. Yeah, uh, and... And I think a lot of those voices, we're talking about, you know, feminism, a lot of those voices uh, tend to be black men. And we're getting a lot of that in history. And, and I th- and I can, I'm going to bring ex- examples of that, just, just letting you know. Um, but in general, I mean, the communities that were impacted most in America were the ones who didn't have any access to firearms and gun control impacted them deliberately um, on purpose and systematically. And, and that was African-Americans that was um, starting from slave codes, uh, where literally the only person who was able to even touch or hold the firearm um, on a plantation was um, the, the quote unquote butler, right? Or the, the person that drove the master around that was the slave codes and guarded gun ownership. Um, and then that changed to black codes um, after, you know, everything um, after slavery was abolished. Um, but it continued with policies through Jim Crow laws um, and et cetera, where it was particularly in the South, very um, pushed that if you're African-American, if you're black, that you couldn't have rights to firearm ownership. Um, you can essentially, again, be a complete citizen in the eyes of the system. Um, But we saw also with Martin Luther King Jr., who, after his bomb threats and everything like that, went to apply two times for a a concealed carry permit and was denied twice by a racist, uh, the racist police chief who who didn't want uh, an African-American man protecting himself because he was protecting himself against not only bomb threats, but through the KKK, who we have shown in history and has has actually started as a anti-gun group because um, after after the civil rights movement, after Reconstruction, they were used as a kind of um, de facto militia group to kind of quote unquote keep African Americans in line, freed slaves in line, um, and so that's what a lot of people, black people in the South, would use was 
their their firearms that they used in the Civil War, they used in the, um, in, in other different wars that they fought in, but didn't get the equal rights that their white counterparts received after the war. They had those firearms and used those on their front porches in their homes to defend themselves against KKK um, uh, members and, and the like who were trying to lynch them or harm them or take the law into their own hands, especially in the South. So there's there's tons of history and documentation of how African-Americans um, use firearm ownership in order to at least defend themselves against, at that time, a, a law that was indistinguishable from, from, from racist members of society as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that those people who are fighting for tighter gun control would, um, one of the, one of the things that they would turn to, of course, would be the mass shootings in America, which seem to be happening almost constantly. I'm curious to know what your response would be to that. You know, like, what do we do about these mass shootings? Is this connected to gun control? How do we curb this kind of violence? Yeah, and I think first, I think one thing I want to say is is that I could care less about guns or firearms. I, I really could. It's not like I'm a gun enthusiast or, oh, man, I just really think we should keep guns because, you know, we have a right to and they just seem fantastic. Like, I'm actually doing this because I care very much about human beings, about defending people's lives, about making sure that we don't have innocent people taken from us Um when they don't need to be. And that's why I'm I'm such a passionate advocate for the Second Amendment, but particularly a passionate advocate for uh, the Second Amendment empowering women, um, because I see so many innocent women, so many innocent children and those who are vulnerable and defenseless um, who are who don't have access or have the ability to defend their lives. And unfortunately, only get to see a firearm used against them um, to harm themselves. And so that's why I'm a passionate advocate for the Second Amendment, not because, uh, you know, I'm an engineer who loves I'm fascinated about firearms is because I, I, I truly believe and have seen policies that help empower people because they have the ability, the, the good guys, the good women with guns to be able to defend their lives and defend others that they care about. And so when I say I, I start that off because, you know, I I was I had the honor of being um, one of the people in the panelists of a, a rec- the assault weapons ban uh, hearing actually that just you know, just went in place about a couple of weeks ago. And so um, unfortunately, that is the narrative is that if you're pro Second Amendment or pro gun, that you don't care about children or you don't. You know, you don't care, you know, about defending lives. But unfortunately, we've seen time and time again, and the studies have shown that the places that these horrible human beings go to to commit these atrocities, that 94% of these places are uh, of mass shootings um, occur in gun-free zones. They occur in places where these criminals know that they can do the most harm in the, the most amount of time, you know, uh, sorry, the least amount of time, they can do the most harm in the least amount of time. And so they go to these places deliberately because they know that there's not going to be easy access for the good person or the good man or woman to be able to use a firearm in defense of their, in, of their lives or people around them. And that's why they go there, including um, universities and 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 K through 12 uh, places and schools, etc. So that's why I'm so passionate about making sure that they aren't gun free zones, because the more that I mean, it just shows time and time again. I mean, you can look through the FBI and statistics that criminals are only going to go to places where they know they can do the most harm. And so that is a benefit for anybody in those spaces to be able to have access to defend their lives. And when you are a law-abiding person, you're going to follow the law because that's what the law is. And unfortunately, though, 
when you put yourself in that situation of a place that doesn't allow you, that law-abiding person, to have a firearm, then that criminal who doesn't care about that law that's in place, in fact, is going into those places because they know that you, a law-abiding person, are not going to have a firearm, um, that's when that recipe for tragedies occur. And so that's what I would say to people about with mass shootings, et cetera, um, is, is those areas are the overwhelming places where mass shooters and criminals go is the people in places where they know that they're vulnerable and defenseless um, from being able to protect themselves. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, in Canada, uh, Justin Trudeau recently banned the import of handguns and he introduced a bill to implement a national freeze on buying, importing, selling, and transferring of handguns. Um, this is despite the fact that we don't really have a gun problem in Canada. Um, we don't have a ton of mass shootings. And, you know, to me, it seems like he's essentially importing progressive American politics into Canada, you know, maybe for woke points or something like that. But I'm curious to know, do you think there will be any negative repercussions for this kind of um, ban or, you know, freeze on buying and selling of handguns? Well, I mean, it's interesting that that's, I mean, the handgun, um, just setting what the gun control narrative and culture and the movement has been in America um, for um, a book person I love books and so um read the book Gunfight by Adam Winkler not pro second amendment not pro gun uh I think he does a pretty good job about just showing the history of gun ownership and gun control in America and, and gun rights in America um but handguns were right now we're talking about rifles in America right like I said the assault weapons ban etc um and right now that is the hot uh, topic um, in when it comes to gun ownership in America is banning rifles, banning so-called assault weapons, assault rifles. But in the 80s, 90s even, um, handguns was the big thing. That was the thing that the gun control movement was adamantly trying to ban in America was to, you know, handguns were the things that were people were just um, we're, we're aiming at trying to completely wipe out in America. Um, that changed relatively partly um, due to, to several Supreme Court um, uh, Supreme Court decisions saying that you couldn't. I mean, even the Brady campaign used to be coalition um, for banning handguns. That was that was the, the focus. And so we're kind of seeing that in kind of like start over again in different places, like, for example, in Canada, uh, with Trudeau of, well, you know, handguns must be the issue. Um, and we're here in America already where it's kind of switched after concealed carry movements and open carry movements. Um, now we're in constitutional carry movements where we found that the statistics just did not show that handguns were the issue, and and the same thing now with rifles. They're just not showing like less than one percent of of deaths in America are caused by of are caused with rifles, um, and then even less, you know, not that much more than that. Uh, murders in general are even used with firearms in America, and the, the deaths that we have in America with firearms are two thirds. Um, of suicide. Those are suicide deaths, not murder deaths and so, or homicides. And so that's kind of what we're seeing. It's interesting to see that dynamic happen right now in other countries like, like Canada. So, I mean, what, uh, I think what's going to happen, though, is when people keep harping on they, as they should on the, the facts and the details coming out of, okay, are we really making a difference in policy, you know, just a political, not political stance, but policy stance. Like, are we actually helping the population here have things change? And I mean, just like what happened in America is that they're ultimately 
like the Brady campaign, uh, campaigns like that went away from that because they found that it wasn't really making a policy difference. It was not helping the American people when it comes down to am I safe or not. So I, I just think it's kind of this uh, insanity cycle that we're already seeing play out. And like you said, just a uh, this um, kind of importing American progressive politics or radical politics um, and not really about good policy, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's what's a, the policy that you would advocate for in terms of, of gun laws in America specifically? Well, you know, I think when it comes down to it, I, I, I just like anybody, I think um, what I found that has been a detriment to, say, you know, Black people, for example, um, in in regards to gun control, is that we've found so many different ways that it's had lack of access to in regards to, like, equal access to even firearm ownership or, or legal um, permitting systems. I mean, the permit system was part of a gun control um kind of a mechanism to keep a lot of African-Americans at that point, especially in poorer areas from being able to have the financial access to legal ownership, gun ownership. Um, And so we see that still in place in a lot of places in America today. Um, The fact that it's almost $300, $400 to to get a a permit legally. And if, if you are able to, in places like Illinois, um, to to California, et cetera, um, where it's you're just financially kicked out of that bracket of being able to even pursue legal gun ownership outside of your home, um, it just goes to the fact that there's still that gun control issue when it comes to even helping those who are African-American, helping those who are in these areas that are not safe, um, where they're concerned about other people in their community hurting them or harming them. Um, But those people who are just trying to make a living and live day to day don't even have the means financially or even unfortunately politically at some points because you have to ask a sheriff or ask a police officer in a lot of these um, may issue areas where you have to ask for permits um, where they're able to access firearm ownership in the right way. So I think that's what's been the biggest issue is that we've been seeing on the city level, the local level, um, the state levels where the Second Amendment really isn't, it, it's not equal to all. And and we're seeing these cities that have still made it very almost impossible for, for places where people need it the most, the most vulnerable, the most defenseless, have, should have access to the firearm ownership and firepower that they need to defend them, their lives just as much as someone in a you know wealthy area of you know Dallas, Texas, for example. So I think that's what I see is the, um, the inequity when it comes to being able to access firearm ownership and do it in a safe legal way and to train the way that they need to so they can have that ability to defend their lives just like anybody else regardless of where they are in the country Mm -hmm. i'm curious to know if feminists have engaged with your arguments in your work you know and if so how do they engage with you um yeah, I, I <laughs> in different ways, I, I think is what it is. Um, again, I mean, the I think even right now, there's kind of like this big push again, not like that again with bell hooks, etc. of like with hood feminism. Um, and and I can't even say the article about uh, the name of it right now. Um, America GD, like <laughs> you know, like these black feminists are coming out and um and I'm thankful for their work in the modern times of of talking about why it's still we're not the same here um in feminism but it is still overwhelmingly a very white upper middle class um 
mainstream feminist movement that is led by white upper middle class women um, who tend to and, I, and in the author of feminism also she she talks about that of of issues that we're not really talking about here um, as black women. Um, and so I think there's still that big disconnect, the separate roads of feminism there of, of, of the things that we're dealing with as black women that I think again shows in the statistics of black women being overwhelmingly the ones who are, who are buying firearms um, at a, a rate that's way more than anything else. I think that has, is attributed by the violence against black women that we've seen in, in many different instances. We're still one of the highest when it comes to sexual assault. We're still one of the highest when it comes to um, violence of domestic partners and, and, and relationships. We're still uh, the most vulnerable in a lot of different instances. Um, violence against black women is still disproportionately high. And so I think it's, Black women filing saying, again, like, I'm going to have to take this into my own hands to defend myself. And even if the mainstream white female feminist movement doesn't see me and is not making policies to honestly to protect me um, individually, then I'm going to do it myself. And that's what I'm I think that's what we're really seeing right now in this movement. And and it's just been interesting that even the last couple of years of You'll see in the media people praising black women when it comes to that we vote a certain way or et cetera. Mm-hmm. But it's crickets constantly. It's I don't really want to talk about that topic or some type of patronizing, condescending way of of, of saying why it doesn't matter that they're that, that me as a black woman that we're becoming gun owners at a rate much higher than anybody else. Um, just goes to show that we still have on many levels the racism and the sexism that other people cannot see and have not dealt with. And that has has changed our, our way of thinking to to ultimately, again, always be about the ultimate, which is I need to protect myself and no one else is, is going to be doing it. So I need to do it myself. So I think that's really what it is. Mm-hmm. Tell me about Empowered. Uh, yeah, so empowered was essentially the whole sentiment of of me realizing that there wasn't a space for people like me, people who came from a background again, not the typical Second Amendment activist, um, uh, you know, but then also who was sick and tired of the, uh, you know, having arguments on both sides, you know, people who who want to argue about, um, you know, whether it's one in four, one in five people, you know, women are, are sexually abused. I was sick and tired of that, um, that harping on certain issues and on the conservative right. And then um, also sick and tired of it never being brought up as a solution that, you know, being pro Second Amendment is actually being pro feminist and pro woman. Um, so I wanted to have a voice that actually went in that vein. And so I started Empowered to a um, in 2017 as a graduate student and um, just because I just didn't see young professional women who were who, who had a prominent voice in, in the Second Amendment world in talking about gun rights or women's rights, um, something I still get pushed back on on both sides, not only just on the feminist side, but on the other side, too. <laughs> uh, pro-gun side, who just like, oh, everybody's, you know, gun rights. Well, yes, but women, I, I believe, do especially um are are impacted when they have that ability to to have gun rights fully actualized so um that is why i started empowered to a was that to be that voice and now it's part of gun owners of america and i'm leading it as the national director of women's outreach um but yeah we, we empowered to a's focus on empowering women through the second amendment it started as mostly for college women, uh, essentially at my time of when I started the organization a few years ago. I'm now a mom of, of two, I'm married. Um, but even so, I still think there's not really been a place for us in this whole sphere of of the gun rights movement. And, and I, I just wanted to have a space that more modern voices, more women who are coming up, who didn't grow up with firearms, et cetera, could have a voice and a say of, of talking about why the Second Amendment empowers them. And 
What would you recommend to women who want to educate themselves about guns and gun use, who want to learn how to use a firearm, who want to acquire a firearm? Uh, I'd say go get training. I mean, that's the first thing is, um, I mean, it's hard. It's still hard to find female instructors. And I'm sorry about that. I'm hoping that will change. It only is going to, it's only going to happen as, as more women, of course, become gun owners, but also decide to take the next step and then become leaders in this industry and, and this realm as well. And, and, and it doesn't have to be an industry, the realm. I mean, you could be an individual and, and not be in the chaos of the politics of it, but um, but at the end of the day, it is gonna, it's coming down to individuals deciding to, you know, take training into their own hands and safety into their own hands and um, reaching out to a woman, female instructor is I think probably the best bet that you have to really be able to be a part of this community and fellowship of, of other women who are doing this for themselves and doing it in a, a path that might be different than what we've seen other people do, particularly men do um, in this in this world. I mean, there's so many things that even I am still trying to navigate as a gun owner um, with concealed carry wear and, and lifestyle and um, just do I purse carry? Do I not? You know, there's so many things that I've seen in this world that it just comes down to, you need to ask another woman um, who's already doing this to, to really get the help that you need if you're fascinated or interested in be becoming a gun owner and, and becoming a, a trained and safe gun owner. Because the last thing we want is an influx of people who want to be gun owners, but are not doing it in a safe manner, right? And and I do think actually that means getting the government out of the way and letting people find the training that they need and the amount of time they need to do it um, to be able to, to, to have that journey um, realized. Um, thank you so much for talking with me today. I found this conversation super interesting and enlightening and I, I hope that we can, you know, stay in touch and, um, yeah, I really appreciate your work and perspective. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for asking. This is great. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. To purchase tickets to Women Leaving the Left, Breaking the Political Binary, which is taking place on Friday, September 30th in Round Rock, Texas, you can visit eventbrite.com. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current Podcast anywhere you like to listen. iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, Spotify, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Feminist Current is produced and hosted by myself, Megan Murphy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.